0: guys. High Point is a teaching church. What that means is that we believe very strongly that High Point is part of something bigger beyond ourselves and that the other churches around us in our community, our state, and in our world are Um, are on our team, they're not our competitors. And part of our job is is that if we're presently for some reason in a state of health or growth or anything like that, it is our job to provide leadership and provide troops and provide people to provide leadership for other places in the body of Christ. What What it also means is that we recognize that God is doing a special work often among our younger people who are emerging into adulthood, and if we don't make a space for them, then it's very hard for them to use the gifts God has given them and to become the next generation of leaders at our church. I really hope that the next senior pastor of High Point will have been an intern that you listen to preach and go. And then they come back seven years later and you're like, whoa. (laughs) We're glad we made that investment. It's also because it's important for the health of the church because you have to learn to listen to people that you wouldn't have necessarily selected for yourself, and if you like the senior pastor or the associate pastor, and you like listening to them preach, you need to get used to listening to people who aren't them, because part of keeping in step with the Spirit is being ready to hear God speak to you and lead you and teach you through anybody's mouth, even the mouths of your enemies. That's what it means to be really open, to be in step with the Spirit all through your life. And so therefore, um, interns are great for that. And last, it's really important. It's really important for um, our, our, our top leaders because working with these guys is enormously life-giving for us. And it's also the rest that comes when they preach or when they do stuff is incredibly important for us to not burn out. And so um, it says in 1 um, Peter chapter 4, it says that um, whatever gifts God has given, you should use them to faithfully administer God's grace to the church. And if it's speaking, you should speak as though you're speaking the very words of God. Which, in correlation, means if you're listening to someone who's speaking, you should listen like you're open that they may be speaking the very word of God that you need to you. So as Adam speaks now, um, and as Trevor speaks in just a little bit, I hope that you'll listen like that, that you will see it as a spiritual discipline of listening to somebody that you didn't get to pick, and listening, recognizing that God has told him to speak, no matter his age, no matter his experience, that he has told Adam to speak as though he's speaking the very words of God and that therefore you are to listen as though you are open to the fact that God may be speaking the very words of God that you need this morning. So let's pray for Adam as he speaks to us. God, I pray that right now um, you would pour out your Holy Spirit on Adam, that he would speak in, um, in relation to what he's prepared, but that he would know where to linger and where to advance in relationship to how you would lead them to speak to these specific people at these, this specific moment. Please re-speak your word mediated through his personality, given his level of experience and ability. And I pray that it would be a blessing to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thanks, Nick. So yeah, the, the interns are speaking today. Um, I chose my topic on the hiddenness of God, which is a very broad topic, a very deep topic, and a topic all of us experience a lot. So I was actually hoping Nick was gonna give me like a full month to do a series on this, but I get half a service. Um, so, uh, three weeks ago now, I got a, a call from a random number from a guy downtown and he called me and he's like, I, I am a Christian or I was a Christian and I don't want to be a Christian anymore. Are you willing to meet up and talk? He got my number online from a, a crew page. So I'm like, yes, of course, I can, I can meet up and talk and I meet up with him and, and we're talking and I'm asking him questions about his life and um, trying to teach any lessons that I, I know, which are few and far between. And we talked for three hours. And at the end of it, he's just not in the best financial position, so um, I do help him out in that, too. And all the while, I'm like praying to God, like, what do you want me to say? What, give, me, give me clarity on what I should do. Um, how does he need to be helped? What position is he really in? And I'm just praying through all these things and asking God and asking God. Um, so this goes, and a couple of days after this, I, I find out that he, he lied to me. I, I don't know how much he lied. Uh, I know there are There was parts that he did lie. Um, And my reaction to this was anger. I was angry at everybody involved. I was angry at him for lying to me. I was angry at God for not giving me clarity in this situation. And I was angry at myself for being angry at God. I just had days, a couple days, of just constantly thinking, if only God would have given me clarity of, like, specific details of something that I should have told him, I could, like, walk away knowing that he heard something that he needed to hear. Or if only God could have showed me what effects that this had, that that had, that that had, and how it works in his grand plan for what he's doing in this world. If only he can like, show me that clarity, I can know that it had a good effect. And through a couple days of just struggling with this anger, with this anger of not having clarity in the situation, for feeling like it was all a waste of my time and my money, at the end of it, somehow, I was able to walk away feeling closer to God, and more in love with the needy that I want to help them more. And that is because God's hiddenness is both brutal and beautiful. It's both brutal and beautiful. Let's look at some scripture quick. Romans 11, 33 through 36. Uh, You guys can open up into your Bibles. This will be my main passage. Um, The entire sermon will... Be connecting to it um so feel free to have it out romans 11 33 through 36 all oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of god how unsearchable his judgments and his past beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the lord or who has been his counselor who has ever given to god that god should repay them for from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever amen so God's hiddenness is both brutal and beautiful. My first point, God's hiddenness is brutal, but it is not from his brutality. We've all experienced this. We all experience this God that is vague, that's the shining light, that there's, there's something there, but we have zero clarity. We, we don't have the details. This is what we all, we all experience. Whereas all of us want this— the very clear. We have the details. We see exactly what he's doing. We see exactly who he is. We can, we can see that his flowing beard. We just have all the details. We have all the clarity. That's what all of us want, yet we all experience his hiddenness, his, this in-clarity. All of us have so many questions. Why is God this way? Why is he so gracious or why is he so just? Why is the world this way? Why is the world full of so much evil? We ask questions, what are you doing through this situation? How could you allow something to happen? A lot of you guys have gone through a lot worse and have struggled with a lot deeper questions than I probably have that God is just not being clear to you with. My favorite question that I keep asking God that I feel like is not clear is, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do when I'm with my friend? What do you want me to say here? What do you want me to do in my future? That's a question that I always keep asking. It never seems like he's very clear. Sometimes he answers, but most of the time, I just feel like i got to guess at what I should be doing. This frustration that we feel, we see all throughout the Bible in different characters, too. Psalm 73. Asaph, the, the author of Psalm 73, the entire first half of the psalm is Asaph complaining, how is the world created this way? That evil people prosper, that those that are wicked, those that are lie, those that are cheaters, they're the ones that are amassing wealth, they're the ones that are healthy, they're the ones living long. How can the world be this way? Then we get to these verses, Psalm 73, 21 and 22. My heart was grieved and my spirit embittered. I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He couldn't understand how God could create this world, and that made him angry, that made him frustrated with God that he was a brute beast before him. We see this in Jonah. Um, a lot of you know the story of Jonah. God, God told Jonah to go to a wicked city and preach to them. And Jonah's like, no, I don't want to. God's like, no, you're going to go. So Jonah goes, and he, he tells the city that, that God's going to destroy them if they don't repent. And, and the city repents, and God doesn't destroy them. And then we get this verse, Jonah 4.1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He didn't understand what God was doing. He didn't understand who God was. He's like, God is too gracious. He's too forgiving. He didn't have the clarity of who God was in his completeness, and this made Jonah angry. This part that is brutal to us is that we know we should be in a complete—we re- should be in this complete relationship with God. It's like the same brutalness that a long-distance relationship experiences. When you got like two cute lovers that are, are forced to be apart, like that's painful to both of them. That's frustrating. Um, it's that same brutalness that we feel from the hiddenness of God. That, that we're just separated from Him and we know that we should be in this relationship with Him. And specifically as Christians, we know that we have the right to this relationship with Him. Through Jesus' redemption, we have this reunion with God, that we can be in this complete relationship with Him, complete union with Him. And ultimately, that we're hoping for that someday, that for all eternity, that we'll be in this complete, clear relationship with Him, that we see Him in His full glory. Yet, that's not what we experience right now. All of us feel God should do more, God should reveal more of Himself. And that's not wrong. It's, it's right to want this relationship with God. And it, and it hurts that we don't have it to complete. But it's really important to realize that it, this is not from his brutality. This is not his, his punishment against us. Him not being clear to you in a situation is not because you're sinning or not because he, he's trying to punish you. It's not from his wrath that he is hiding aspects of himself or hiding things from you, that he's not making some things clear. It's not from his wrath. It's not from his brutality. It is brutal. It does hurt that we're not in this complete relationship with him, but it's not as a punishment. So this longing for God is right, and it is brutal that we don't have it. But in the midst of brutality, beauty thrives. In the midst of brutality, beauty thrives. In the midst of this pain that we can feel, beauty can thrive. Think about the last time you were at the dentist. If you're going to tell me that the dentist is not a brutal experience, like, I want to know your dentist so I can go there. I just went to the dentist last week. It's a brutal experience. They're like digging at your teeth, they're scraping in there, they're chipping away at your gums, and you're just like, why are you hurting me so much? And through this brutalness, there's this beauty that comes from it. I have straight teeth. I have mostly white teeth and there's this beauty that can come from the brutalness think about a a field of grain that you have this giant field of grain and it's very beautiful what's the next thing that happens to this field it gets murdered we we have this a, a calm word for it, it's called harvest the farmer goes out and he murders this field he kills the entire field and kind of two main things come from this He sells a bunch, and a bunch of people and animals can eat from it and live through that field being murdered. And he also saves some of the the crop that he has, has harvested, and next year he plants it, and he creates this new life. There's this beauty that comes from the brutalness of killing that field. Think about the cross. I would argue that that is the most brutal point in all of history, and it's also the most beautiful. That those two are coinciding, that it is the most brutal and it's the most beautiful. That that Jesus died, Jesus was mocked, Jesus was whipped, Jesus was accused, even though he did nothing wrong, he was murdered. But through this brutalness, we see God's beautiful plan. That God is giving us a life we don't deserve. That we can experience this beauty. All of history is pointing to the beauty of that moment but it's also the most brutalness. And the way this beauty thrives in this brutalness is the same way for the hiddenness of God. This, the frustration and the pain that we feel from the hiddenness of God, from him being unclear, creates this beauty in us. And that beauty is the fact that the hiddenness of God is the exact tool that God uses to produce faith and hope. And since it produces faith and hope, it ultimately produces love also. It's, it's this weird irony that, that God drawing back, God, God drawing back from us and not giving us his complete presence, not giving us that complete bliss of who he is, not giving us the complete clarity of who he is and what he's doing, him drawing back from us is the exact thing that makes us feel close to him. It's the exact thing that produces faith in us, that produces hope in us. It produces this longing for us, knowing that someday we will have that. But right now, we get to grow in this faith and this love for him. Embracing his hiddenness ultimately produces a closeness to him. And as I look throughout Romans 11, um, the passage that we were looking at at the beginning, I'm like, so how do we embrace his hiddenness? What's like the main key of embracing his hiddenness? And what I got is understanding it's not about you. It's being able to be humble. It's not about you. It's all things are from him and for him and through him, and all glory be to him. It's not about you. Accepting that and being humble is the exact way that we're able to embrace his hiddenness and grow in our faith and hope and love for him and be close to him. This brutality that we experience, this frustration, is the exact thing that God uses to bring stubborn people to him. He needs to be hidden to me. He needs to be unclear to me because I am stubborn. I think I deserve what I don't deserve. I think he needs to give me what he doesn't need to give me. So what does this mean about real life? What's, what's, the, what's the application? Because God's hiddenness is both brutal and it's beautiful, it can have two effects on us. The first effect is this anger and rage. Or the first effect is faith, hope, love, and that's through humility. I cover that. The second effect that this brutality can can have on us is anger and rage. That the pain that we feel produces this anger and rage that we have towards God. C.S. Lewis showed this very wonderfully through the book, Till We Have Faces. Till We Have Faces is all about the hiddenness of God. Um, it follows mainly two, two sisters, one with faith, one without faith. And on the one hand, we have the main character, Ariel. She comes upon a field of sheep, and all the sheep have golden um, wool, that their wool is actually gold. It's not just colored gold. It's actually gold. And she's like, I want that. So she starts going after the sheep, and all the sheep and the rams see her, and they start stampeding, and they bump into her and knock her down and trample on her and crush her. But then after that happens, the other sister comes along, and she notices that as the sheep were stampeding, they were brushing up against thorns and thistles and bushes, and their, their wool was getting stuck to it. So all that she had to do was just walk behind them and just pluck gold from bushes and it was saying that she was just getting armfuls. And there's this truth in there that if we feel like we can take from God, if we're we're angry at God and we accuse him and we feel like we deserve something from him, if we feel like we can take from God, what's ultimately going to happen is we're just going to be crushed. But if we can have faith and humility to simply accept what God has revealed, then that's the point that we're just gathering armfuls of this gold. So what I want all of you guys to realize is that his hiddenness is both brutal, it does hurt us, because we do want, we do have this right longing for him. It is brutal, but it's also beautiful. It produces this faith and hope in us. It's a good thing in our lives that we should long for because it does produce this closeness to him in this life that we're living. Yeah, I'd just like to wrap up with praying for you guys. Dear Lord, I just pray that this is something that's true in my life and this is something that is true um, and can be accepted for this congregation as you want them to accept it. And I pray that this is something that produces faith and hope in us and makes us closer to you rather than something that pushes us to anger and rage. In your name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Thanks, Adam. Great job. I think everybody could tell. You worked really hard on that. The hiddenness hiddenness of God is the number one real struggle that every human being has. Problem of pain, all of these other Mm -hmm. problems are sub-problems actually to the problem of divine hiddenness. And it it is a brutal thing but it is also beautiful. And if it is something that you profoundly struggle with, I'd really recommend Lewis's book, Till We Have Faces. It's, it's probably his, the best thing he wrote. It's amazing. And it's also a fairly entertaining novel. It's very helpful. Um, so this is Trevor, and he's next. Let's pray for him. God, please um, be with Trevor as he speaks um, and as he... Um, seeks to speak mediated through your personality, your word re-spoken from the scriptures. Mm. And we pray that it would strike us as it should, Mm. and that we would be open even Mm. in any indelicacy of delivery, that we would listen for what you have shown him in your scriptures, Mm. and that we would receive it as your very word for us, and that it would be transforming to us. Please give us ears to hear, Mm. and give him a mouth rightly to speak. In Jesus' name, amen.
2: Amen. Thanks, Nick. So as you said, my name is Trevor. I just wanted to say that I'm, I'm humbled to be here this morning. Uh, it's kind of surreal that I'm even on this stage. And so thank you for listening. And um, I pray that the Lord will use his word and his words through me to speak this morning. Um, my text is coming from Colossians chapter 1. Um, I don't have it on the screen because I would love for you all to turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. It is on page 1790 of the Pew Bible in front of you or on your phone if you are 21st century. Um, Colossians chapter one, we're looking at verses 15 through 23 this morning. Colossians chapter one says this, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So maybe you can relate to this scenario, but imagine it with me. You wake up one morning and you're getting ready for work. It's another day. And as you're getting ready, you're getting dressed, you're putting on, you're putting on your shirt, you're, you're ch- tying the shoes, and you realize you've forgotten your wallet. We've had this experience, right? Your, your driver's license is in there, your, your, your credit cards are in there, your entire life is in this wallet. So what do you do? For the next five minutes, you search around the room, you panically search around the room to try to find your missing wallet. And of course, after five minutes of panicked searching, there it is. It was right there in front of you the whole time on the nightstand. It was right there out in the open for all to see. And you're sure that you had looked over that one spot three different times. You're positive that you looked that way. But how did you miss it? If you were looking everywhere, you were looking up and down and side to side, how did you miss it? I think, I think it was because you were so focused on what was hidden. You were so focused that it's, it's it's hiding somewhere. I don't know where it is, that we missed out. That it was right there in front of us. It was revealed for you to see. And I think in a little in a, in a way, this is how we treat the hiddenness of God and the, and His revelations. That we tend to focus and dwell on He's hidden. He's not what He hasn't revealed. That we can neglect. We cannot. see sometimes we don't see or we reject what He has revealed. Because it's hiddenness, it's hurt, it hurts, it's personal, it's real. But God's revelations, they're real and they're personal too. And so this morning, through, the, through Colossians 1, I want to talk about God's revelations. What does it mean to God, for God to reveal himself to us? What does it look like and how do we respond in light of that? So my main point today, this morning, is short and simple and sweet. It's that God's revelations are sufficient, that God's revelations are sufficient. Now, when you think of this word, you might think of it like I thought, first thought of it. When I see the word sufficient there, my mind goes to, it's good enough, right? It, it kind of makes the great. It's, not, it's good, but it's not great. It does just enough. It's not, it's not amazing in any sense. But the, the word sufficient here, though, as I'm going to use it and as the Bible talks about it in God's revelations, is that His revelations are perfect, they're complete, they're all we need. We need nothing more than what he has revealed to us. And so they're sufficient in that sense. They accomplish every purpose that they're intended to. And so this morning when we say God's revelations are sufficient, I mean that sufficiency. I don't mean an adequate okay sufficiency. I mean that sufficiency. This morning we're going to look at two different ways in which God's revelations are sufficient for us. His revelations are sufficient for salvation and for sanctification again, what, is, what do I mean by salvation and sanctification? By salvation, I mean that we, were, we are sinful. Every man, every woman, every person who's ever walked the face of the earth, sinful, deserving to die because of our sin. But God, in his great love for us, sent Jesus to die that we may have eternal life through him. He's, he saved us from our sin. sanctification, I mean this, that when when we become a Christian, there's this continual process, right, of of becoming slowly more like Jesus in thought, in word, in action. And so he is sufficient for our sanctification, for this process of doing that. And so I wanted to define those terms before we get started so there's no confusion in what is being talked about there. So we'll first start with sufficient for salvation. God's revelations are sufficient for salvation, so why did Jesus have to come? This is a question you've ever asked yourself. Why did, why did Jesus come? Why, did, why, why was he here? Why did God feel the need to send his son? The Colossians 1:13 in our passage gives us, and it gives us a little bit of a taste. And it says, once, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Those are pretty powerful words now. Alienated from God. Enemies. We weren't just on not good speaking terms with God. This was this. This wasn't like we're not speaking right now. We're in a little bit of a fight. No. This is we were. We are enemies. We are opposed to one another. That is because of our evil behavior, because of our sin. There's this opposition between us and God. How did this happen? How this, How do we come to be enemies with God? Romans one says it like says it like this: that God had God's revealed Himself in the world. He's revealed everything we need to know about Him. We, but we saw that. Every one of us saw the way God has revealed himself, and we rejected it. We went the other way. We said, no, God, I do not want that. I will go my own way. And so right from the get-go, we've rejected his revelations. From the very first person to ever walk the face of the earth, we've rejected his revelations to us. I think we still do that today. So when we rejected God, there's this the relationship with God between God and man was broken forever good and evil, righteous, unrighteous, perfect, imperfect, polar opposites, enemies in your minds. The Bible uses words like, we were dead in the trespasses of our sins. We were objects of wrath. We were alienated. We are enemies. So powerful words. But you might be here today, and I'm, I'm saying those words, I'm saying this, and you're saying, Trevor, that's not me, man. I'm a, I'm definitely not dead. I'm, I'm quite alive. Um, I'm not an object of wrath. Uh, I'm not evil. You know, I'm. A, I'm a fairly good person, right? Like I. I sure I mess up sometimes, but I'm a fairly good person. Some people, they might be the ones who are the objects of wrath. These people over here, they deserve God's wrath. But me, I'm. I'm pretty good. I'm. I'm pretty good. I, I've got it together. And to you, friend, I want to say this lovingly, but convictionally. That is, that is how rooted and how deep the sin is in our lives. This, our sin is so core and so rooted in, to who we are that our consciences can, can, can convince us that we are not that. We are not the things the Bible says. Those people, they're the bad ones, but I'm, I can justify myself. I, can, I am fine. Our sin is so deep that it convinces us that we're not sinful. I say it like this, the depth of our sin goes far deeper than we ever think it does. In any moment where you're aware of the depth of your sin, in reality, it's ten times deeper than that. No matter how aware of your sin you are, it's always ten times deeper and more than that. Broken relationship with God. We needed a Savior. And Jesus was and is that Savior. Our passage in here talks gives a list of all these different glories that belong to Jesus. It lists all of these different ones, and I, I won't read them for the sake of time, but you can look. That list is all things that belong to Jesus, characteristics of Jesus. Jesus, the, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, is the full revelation of God himself. He's the foremost. He's the utmost. He's the perfect revelation of God the world has ever known, the world will ever know. If we want to see how God reveals himself in the world, we just look at Jesus, that God loved us so much that he said, I, I, don't, want, I don't want this relationship to be broken. I want to restore it. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus was the exact imprint of God's nature. Colossians 1.15 says, for he, the Son is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the revelation of God. Full, perfect revelation of God. When we see Jesus, we see God. And what was this, what was Jesus' mission? What was his purpose for coming? It says it here in Colossians 1.20, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is God's mission. God's entire purpose for coming to the earth was this, to reconcile to himself all things, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God saw this broken relationship. He saw this this seemingly irreconcilable relationship between God and man. And he knew, he saw that in our sin, we could not achieve salvation on our own. We could try all the good things we could, but we couldn't restore the relationship. We can't repair that relationship. It's forever severed. So God says, "I, I love you. I love these people. I can't have this. And so he sends his son. His plan from the beginning was to send his son to reconcile to himself all things. That was his plan from the beginning. From the first moment we sinned to the revelation of Jesus, his plan for us today is that we would be reconciled to him. And so when I think about this, I think, Jesus Christ, in all of his glory, he was perfectly successful in accomplishing that mission. When he died on the cross, he says, it is finished. And I, be, I think he believed that. I know he believed that. He meant that. He meant it's finished. He didn't, say, he didn't say, it's 99% finished and you carry yourself the rest of the way. He says, it is finished. My work is done. Salvation has been accomplished. This work is sufficient for you. It is enough. What does this mean? Is that for us, Jesus, the gospel is sufficient. That is enough. There is nothing more for salvation that we need. There is nothing for, more for salvation that we can get, we can earn for ourselves. Nothing, friends, nothing. We seek our sufficiency from outside of ourselves and not from what we can perform. But as people who crave self-sufficiency, we struggle to accept sufficiency outside of ourselves. Self-sufficiency in culture is it's a goal, right? It's a value. You know, as a 23-year-old, as one day, I, Lord willing, I will have, me, have a wife, have a kids, I'll have, I'll have a home. I'll be self-sufficient, right? I won't need anyone else to do anything. I'll be able to take care of myself. This is a value. And if you don't have that in our society, you're kind of looked down upon, right? You don't, you're seen as, well, why aren't you self-sufficient? And so when we see, when we, and with this in mind, when we hear about Jesus says, I'm sufficient. You are not sufficient for salvation for yourself, but I am the one who's sufficient. Believe in me. Receive this. You don't have to earn it for yourself. We have this mind of, I need to be self-sufficient. No, no, no. I reject that. I reject sufficiency outside of myself because I am sufficient. I am the one who is sufficient in and of myself. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and I can be sufficient for my own salvation. But Jesus is saying, no, believe in me believe that I am the one who's sufficient you could not restore this relationship but I did and you can believe in that today you can believe in that maybe you came in this morning and through your life you're looking for joy and peace and a purpose that's substantive that's real you've looked in all kinds of places to find it and to do that, you've tried to change things about yourself, maybe. You've tried to add something to what you're doing or taking something away or changing something and saying, if I, if I do this, then I, can, I will have lasting joy and purpose in my life. You're trying to find sufficiency in yourself. And maybe you've noticed already that those things have failed. And if you haven't noticed, they will fail. Every attempt to find joy, peace, purpose, salvation, by any other means, will fail. But Jesus... God, the ultimate revelation of God himself, is saying, in me there is joy, everlasting substance and joy. There is peace. There is salvation. Don't rely on yourself, for you will fail. But believe in me. I am the one who has never failed. But if if you're Christians, right, we kind of know this already. Like, We've accepted Jesus is our Lord and Savior and we, he is sufficient for our salvation. I'm, not tell, I'm probably not telling us anything new if you're, if you're a Christian, right? You've, we've accepted, we believe this. He is our God. But even we, friends, are not immune to this. We've, we walk with Jesus, we follow Jesus for a little while. But after a while, don't we start to fill in the cracks of our salvation with good Christian moral things to do? We don't say explicitly, I'm looking to f- I'm, I, need, I think I need something else besides Jesus to fill in my salvation. We don't say that. But in our lives, we make this big deal out of church, church attendance, small group attendance, what, fill in the blank, and those are all great and good, good things that God would want for us. But if we're not careful, we make those things our savior. We try to fill in the cracks of our salvation with things that are not the gospel, that are not Jesus. Friends, your church attendance is not your salvation. Your small group involvement is not your your salvation. Your Bible reading is not your salvation. Jesus is your salvation. There's no other savior but him. He's the perfect gift, He is all we need. We do not need to add or we can't add more to it. To illustrate this point further, I wanted to give a little bit of analogy. So imagine with me, if you will, your ideal restaurant. Okay, you've got it in your mind? Your favorite restaurant, it's, it's close by, it's close to home, so you can go there anytime you want. The, the menu is such that you could go there every single meal of your entire life and you would never be tired of it. The service is phenomenal. They have one of those soda machines with 435 combinations so you can get your mango vanilla Sprite if you so care for. Okay, so now we've all got this picture in our mind, right? Our ideal restaurant, you can, you can imagine yourself there. And so if you're like me, you're imagining this, Wendy's the essence of fine dining. Uh, I can't, no, I'm kidding. If Wendy's is your favorite restaurant, I cannot help you. Uh, But no, okay, let's imagine our favorite restaurant, not Wendy's. And let's say someone gives you a lifetime gift card to that restaurant. You can eat there for free for the rest of your life for every single meal. You love it, it's amazing, it's the best thing ever, right? So you go there, you eat there a couple times. But after a while you say, Gosh, is this, is this really enough? Like, I, I think I'm missing out on something here. And so you, you drive to Walgreens, the frozen food section, and you, ba- you buy a bag of frozen french fries. You say this, this is what I was missing. This is it, this, this will make it complete. And so you drive home, you bake up those Walgreens frozen french fries and you pack them up, and you take them to the restaurant with you and you add them as a side to your perfect plate. And, you say, and then you relax in your chair and you say this. This is perfection. This is sufficient. This is what I needed. Doesn't that sound a little bit ridiculous? That you're taking a perfect plate of food and you're adding Walgreens, frozen, French fries. No matter how much you love Walgreens, frozen, French fries, you don't need them. Like they won't make the meal better, but for some reason you thought they would. And so in in the same way, we can tend to see this perfect gift of salvation and say, I need something else. Maybe if I, just, if, I, if I read my Bible enough, that will be enough to prove that I'm worthy of being saved. But friends, the gospel is the full course meal of salvation. It is the entree, it is the side, it is the dessert, it is the drink. You don't need a side of fries with that. So moving on to sufficient for Sanctification. God God reveals himself not in the person of Jesus, but also to us today in every starry sky, in every book of the, every passage of the Bible that is convicting or it, it speaks to us. God is revealing himself in numerous, numerous ways today. Why does he reveal himself today? For what purpose? You can probably tell from the slide. It says in Colossians 1, 9, and 10, We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding the Spirit gives, so you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God this passage, we see that God, so God is the one to f- filling you. I, I highlight to fill you. God is filling you with what? He's filling you with knowledge of his will through wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives. So God is revealing himself to us. He is giving us his, the knowledge of his will and wisdom. For what purpose? Why is he doing that? That you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. In other words, the purposes of God's revelations are our sanctification. Everything He reveals to us is to help us follow His will, make us more like Him in thought, in words, in action. Everything that God is revealing to us, whether that's in nature, in Scripture, or in through the Holy Spirit in our lives, everything He's saying to us is, the of, is for the purpose of making us more like Him. That makes sense. That, God, that makes sense, right? That God would want us to be more like Him, and so He would reveal things that would help us do that. But it's different to say, there's a difference between saying God's revelations are for our sanctification and God's revelations are sufficient for our sanctification. The word sufficient there is important because if we say they're sufficient for our sanctification, there's this implication that... They're enough. All that he's revealed is enough for my sanctification. It's compl- I don't need anything else. If we say they're for our sanctification, that's, high, that's nice to say because we don't have to really think about it. It's just nice in theory. When we say it's sufficient, there's a, there's a, it might sting. Because there might be things in our life where we say, you know, if God, would, if God revealed something, if he revealed that to me, I would know him more, right? I would love him more. I could love him more if he would reveal why he did that, if he showed me why this was happening. So I don't believe that his things are sufficient for my sanctification. I don't believe the revelations are sufficient because of this thing, because of X, whatever it is. That's, that, we feel that. I know I felt that. But friends, the Bible is clear in saying that everything that God has revealed, he has revealed everything we need for our sanctification. Second Peter one, three, our verse for the year. I paraphrase, we say God has revealed everything we need in order to live a godly life. Everything we need to live a godly life in order to follow him, to love him, to serve him. We've been given, he's revealed everything we need to do that. We may want to know more, but he's saying, trust in me, trust in me, I'm sufficient for you. I'm not holding back on you. I'm giving you everything that you need. What God has revealed is enough to please God, bear fruit in everything, and increase the knowledge of God. So we don't need some special knowledge that God's holding out on us in order to love him. We we simply need to follow what he said, what he's revealed in his scriptures, in our hearts. All we need to do is follow follow that and love that and see that. The problem is a lot of times we reject it. We wish, it's it's interesting because my my heart's cry a lot of times, is God, reveal yourself, show yourself to me, reveal yourself to me anew. And then I would see it, I would love you. And then God does reveal himself to me, and what do I do? No, God, I don't want that. That's not the the right revelation. Give me a different revelation, and then I'll do it. Or I say, "Ah, is this really God? I'm not really sure. We reject God's revelations. We, act, we, we react wrongly to God's revelations. And so I want to go through three ways in which I think we react wrongly. It's no way, no big deal, and no God. No way is this idea, is this saying that we know God is speaking. There's maybe, there's, maybe there's a moment in your life where you know God has been speaking to you, but you're too scared. You're too scared, or you're too, too afraid to do it, or you, you don't think it's the right time. So you say, nope, God, not going to do that. I, I see you. I see you, God, but I'm going to do this. I'm not going to do that. No big deal is this way of rejection of saying, okay, I see you, God. I see what you're trying to do. I see what you're revealing, but it's not really a big deal. It doesn't really matter. I mean, I'll do it later. The third one is no God. It's a sense of, uh, you know, maybe it's God, but I'm not really sure. You know, It's like, you don't know if it's God or if it's just like the food you had for lunch that's not settling right. It's just this feeling that you don't know. And so you, you deny it because it's easier to deny it than accept than, that it might be God speaking. And so in all three of these ways, we react wrongly to God's revelations. And each of these is a way of rejecting God and believing that his revelations aren't sufficient for you. Because we, our heart's cries, reveal yourself, and then he reveals himself, and we react in one of these three ways. I know that I have. and I'm guessing that all of us have too. And so what is, what, which of these three ways do you think is your way of reacting wrongly to God? But how do we react rightly? So how do we react rightly to God's revelations? I think it starts with seeing them, seeing them. And this comes my to my last two points for application. The well, number one is that we need to live out God's revelations. Before we can live them out, we need to see them. We need to see that God is revealing himself. To them. we need to see, God, here's how you're working. You might be t- t- telling me to talk to this person right now. You might be telling me to love this person. You may be telling me to, st- to stop doing X, Y, and Z, fill in the blank. We need to see that, and when we see it, then we can live it out. And once we see it, we need to act in obedience. We need to identify which of these three ways we react wrongly and say, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to go for, I I, I see your revelation and I want to follow through. Give, Holy Spirit, give me the power and the ability to do that. So live out his revelations. And finally, the last one is stand firm and hold on to the gospel. When God is hidden, when he seems to not be revealing himself, what are we going to hold on to? In the, in the darkest moments, what are we going to hold on to? Friends, I, I think we, our, our, our hope is in the gospel. Our hope is in that Jesus loved us. That he, he might, right now, he might be hidden, but he loved us. And he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. That God loved us. He has died for us. He has saved us. And then we have an ultimate eternal hope that is in heaven, that one day everything will be revealed. Right now we live in a season, we live in in a mirror dimly where we only see certain things. We don't see everything, but one day we will. One day there will be an eternal hope, there will be an eternal revelation of God where no more things are hidden, everything is revealed. And so as we stand here today in the midst of hiddenness, revel in God's revelation of Jesus. Maybe you need to, for the first time, treasure him. Maybe for the first time, you need to say, I believe in you, Jesus. I, can, I accept your sufficiency on my behalf. Or maybe your response is, I need to fall in love with Jesus more. That before I see his revelations outside of the, in, in the world around me, I need to see his revelation in Jesus as more beautiful, more glorious, and treasure it more. So whatever that means for you, to accept it, accept it for the first time, or accept it anew, Stand firm and hold on to the gospel. And remember that there is an eternal hope of an eternal revelation where everything will be revealed and nothing will be hidden. God's revelations are sufficient for every part of our life, our salvation and our sanctification. Hold on to the hope of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. God, in the most radical revelation in the world has ever known, you've revealed yourself to us to let you love us, you died for us. You know, we confess that we react wrongly to your revelations. We, we didn't, we dismiss them. But God, would you open our eyes and our hearts to see how you're working, how you are revealing yourself, how you are showing yourself through your Holy Spirit to us today. May we walk in that, may we live in that with the eternal hope of heaven awaiting. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
0: Um, as if you see Adam and Trevor after the service, please, um, if you don't say great sermon or say, here are the five things you need to improve, what I'd really encourage you is if they said something that was helpful for you, It's clarifying, it moved you, God showed you something, that's what you should share. The, what, what any aspiring preacher should want is for people to come out and be like, when you said this. That helped me see that or feel this or know this or believe that. So if you, if you want to encourage them, that's how you should encourage them because we're not trying to inflate their vanity nor discourage their desire to serve God, but to show that God can actually use them. I want to give you, if, you're, if you took any notes from any of these sermons, I, this is, I think this would be a really good diagnostic from Trevor's sermon. If When we're struggle, struggling in the throes of the brutality of God's hiddenness and we're saying, God, why won't you say, or show something. To put, put in your prayer journal something, this question, am I asking for a revelation I don't need for salvation or sanctification? Am I asking for God to show me something that is actually an alternative to believing what He's already revealed in Christ and in the scriptures and in creation, which is utterly sufficient for me to trust Him in this moment for what it's for? Because usually when we're like, God, why won't you tell me more? Why won't you reveal yourself? What we're actually asking for is a revelation, which would be an alternative to faith. Which is what he's actually calling us to. And um, that'll, get, that'll get us crossways instead of going forward. So um, let's, let's stand together as we sing this last hymn. Let's, let's remember um, the gospel that we're going to remember this year, what we're going to stand firm in, and how, um, however we experience the hiddenness of God this year, that we will understand that it is, it is brutal. It feels brutal, but it's not from God's brutality. And in the midst of that, this incredible beauty, the beauty of the gospel itself, and that in the midst of whatever you experience about the hiddenness of God, God's revelation of what we are to believe in, what's to carry us through, and how we're to be ordered in, and all of that is totally sufficient if we'll open our eyes to see it. Let's pray. Father, please help us to trust you in the midst of the reality of your present hiddenness, to revel in the fact that um, when when the Apostle Paul says, oh, the depths of the glory, that all things are from you to you, that we are going to see that level of revelation someday in its entirety. But for this moment— Help us to trust and believe that the revelation that we have from you is completely sufficient for our needs today and in how we're supposed to interact with them in receiving salvation and knowing we have salvation in you and in, in growing in the knowledge and wisdom of God. Help us to do that and help us to trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.